I'd like you to open your Bibles today, if you would please, to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And I've decided that we would take a break from our study in Matthew today, and uh, this is because of our Thanksgiving celebration. Uh, This particular service is one of my favorites of the year, not just because of the food that we're going to have a little bit later, after a little bit after 12 o'clock, but because this is a time for us as a church body uh, to sit down with one another and have a time of fellowship. And before I go on, I do want to just mention these ladies that are over there uh, on the other side of the curtain there in the kitchen. And they uh, have been here since very, very early this morning getting things prepared for us for dinner today. So you be sure and thank all of them for the hard work that they've done. Uh, You're going to enjoy the fruits of their labors. And also for everyone who's brought in food today, we thank you so much for that. But I like this time of year. I, I like the opportunity, again, that we have to sit down as that church body, as a family, to sit down and think about the many blessings that God has given And when we think of the church as a family, fellowship comes to our mind. Uh, We must be in fellowship with one another. And in order for Christians to fellowship, it means that we have to treat one another properly. All of us desire that we would have peace in our families. And when there's strife and division in our households, then we know that that is really a miserable existence. And it's no different when you come to church. You don't want to come to a church where there are all kinds of arguments, where people can't get along with each other, there are bad attitudes and backbiting, offensive statements that are made. You just don't want to live that way. And there are many people that choose a church, and they go to church because they're trying to escape those very things, because that's what goes on in their household at home. And so they want to get away from that, and they certainly don't want to go to a church that has the same things happening in the church as happens in their homes. Well, I think that we find a key in this part of the Scriptures that help us to have a right attitude. Uh, if the Bible is nothing, it's a practical book. It most certainly is. It's a Bible, uh, The Bible is great about doctrine, and you know that I love to preach on doctrine. I mention that and preach about Uh, the doctrines of the Word of God often, but doctrine does have a practical application. And when it's applied, it produces Christians that are truly conformed to the image of Christ. The Apostle Paul said that our salvation is for that purpose. It's to make us like Christ. He said in Romans chapter 8, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren." And so we can see in those verses God's intention. He has predestined his people to be conformed to Christ. And very simply put, that means he wants us to be Christians. Now, Christian is a word that means Christ-like. And so in our salvation, we have been predestined to be Christ-like. And we find here in the book of Ephesians a great deal of good information about how a person can be Christ-like. I want to read a rather lengthy portion of Scripture in this fourth chapter. I'd like you to pay attention to each verse as we read. I'm not going to preach on the entire passage verse by verse, but there are some important things there that I'm going to refer back to in just a few minutes. And the main verses, the main text for the message today 
verses 31 and 32. So we'll pay close attention to those as well. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse number 17, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness." Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us the opportunity to come into this place today. Lord, uh, bless our fellowship. We thank you so much for it. And open our hearts to what you'd have us to know from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Since we are celebrating Thanksgiving today, you may be wondering, what does this passage have to do at all with Thanksgiving? I could speak to you directly on the subject of Thanksgiving today, and I could tell you that there are many things that we need to give God thanks for. I could make a list of all the blessings that God has given, and and we as Christians could sit here and we could contemplate all the many things that God has done for us throughout the year. But I thought that what I would rather do this morning is that I would give you some information about how you can prove your thankfulness. How do you show that you are thankful for what God has given? Now, it's very easy for us to mouth the words and say all the right things and to sing the songs that we have about being thankful. But thankfulness in a Christian's life is actually a demonstration in your life. True thankfulness comes from obedience to Christ as you live out that transformation that God has made in you. Now, just to catch you up a little bit on one of the main doctrines, a very important one that the Apostle Paul speaks of here in the book of Ephesians, is that he's made it very clear that people that are without Christ are in a depraved state. He says this in the second chapter. He puts it this way, that we are dead in trespasses and sins. And then he goes on to speak about how our life before Christ was according to the ways of the world and how that we lived according to the desires of our flesh. 
And putting that into the simplest of terms, Paul is talking about sinfulness. He's teaching us that we are sinful people through and through. I remember when my dad used to preach on this subject that he would always make the point that we are sinners by birth, we are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by practice. And he taught that because the fall of man was so radical that what it did was to take away all of our spiritual capabilities. Since the fall of man, the natural man has no spiritual capabilities towards God. And this is why in the verse number, or chapter number 2, verse number 1, he speaks that in this condition, Christ had to make us alive. He actually had to bring us into spiritual life, and that is a work that God does and God does alone. Now, if you look at our text uh, in in chapter 4, let's look back in verse number 22, if you would, for just a minute. It says, that ye put off concerning the former conversation. That means your old way of life, the way that you lived before, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So the Word of God is telling us that when a person comes to Christ, when he comes believing and has faith, then there is a new person that's been created. We become new creatures in Christ. In other words, you could say that Christ has given us an extreme makeover. And since we've been made new in Christ... He says that what we are to do is to rid ourselves of those bad habits, all of those old works that we used to do according to the sinful flesh. And now, as new creatures in Christ, we're to live out that nature that has been implanted into us, the nature that's been given by regeneration. That's how we're supposed to live now. So real thankfulness to God is when we obey out of a heart of love what God has done for us. So obedience then becomes a very practical matter for a Christian. And these verses show us that we are to come out of a life of disobedience and what it means then to have our lives reoriented to the life of Christ. Now you'll notice in our text here that Paul has been very specific about sin. Oftentimes we like to generalize sin. We don't really want to speak about sin too specifically, not tell people what they should do, what Christians should do and not do. But Paul has spoken spoken here very plainly about some sins that Christians should not do. Uh, In the verses preceding our text, he's talked about lying and anger and stealing and evil speaking. And in verse number 29, he says that any form of corrupt speech ought not to be a part of a Christian's vocabulary. And so Paul has gotten very, very specific about what Christians should not do. I was speaking to someone a few weeks ago that said there are people that don't like the Baptist church because we are rigid about these kinds of issues. And I'm not surprised by that because that's really just a simple statement that people don't like to hear about their sins. People don't like to be told that they're sinners and a change needs to be made. So I'm not surprised at all that people would say, well, when you go to Berean Baptist Church, the pastor's just liable to nail you on some sin that you're doing. Then I'm going to talk about that and I'm, I'm going to make sure that you don't do those things or do my best to do that. We will talk about sin here. And we will talk about the consequences of sin, and people don't like it. But this is what the Word of God says. And so I'm going to stand on this rather than on someone's opinion about what I ought to preach. 
If Jesus said these things, and if the apostles have said these things in these epistles that they wrote to the churches, then I'm not going to be off on my opinions when I follow exactly what Scripture says. If I say what God says, then I know that I'm going to be right. But in most churches, you'll find that preachers want you to go away feeling good about yourself. Self-esteem gospel is preached. A self-help gospel is preached. But I would say this, that if you go away for today not feeling so good about yourself, realizing that you are a sinner, then I've done what God's called me to do. I preach the word in the way that he wants me to preach the word of God. But I don't want to leave you in that condition. I don't want to leave you feeling bad about yourself. So what I want you to understand also is to realize that you can have relief from this burden of sin. It can be lifted from you. You can feel better because of what God has done for you. And you can put all of your trust, your hope in him and glorify him because he will forgive you of your sins. The Bible says he is just, faithful and just to forgive our sins. So Paul here gives us a list of sins, and you know, everybody here, you, you, if you've been here long enough to hear me preach, you know that I have an aversion to list. I have a, an aversion to people that are watching others, and they have their list of sins, and they're checking things off to see if you are abiding by their list. So if you have a list today, let me just tell you this, that list is for you. And you make sure that you're abiding by everything on your list. And if I'm doing that and checking my own list and everybody's checking their own list, then all of us are going to come into conformity with Jesus Christ. So many times in prayer, what we'll do is we'll talk about sin in general. We'll come to the Lord and we'll say, Lord, please forgive me of my sin. And we never get down to just the nitty-gritty of telling God, Lord, here is exactly what I've done. Forgive me of this very specific sin. You know, too many times we like to generalize sin and we lose, lose the effect of what that sin has really done to us. But when you confess specifically, it brings that sin right down into your living room and you realize just how personal it is. Now, I think that Paul is getting personal with us here. Uh, in verse number 31 especially, it's like Paul is looking at us right up next to our faces, nose to nose and eye to eye, and saying to us, this is your problem, and now you need to stop it. Now, he gave us four sins in verses 25 through 29, and as I read that, I get the feeling that Paul was more, more speaking to the people as an open congregation, to the group as a whole. But here we come down to verses 31 and 32, and I think it's more like Paul sitting down in the chair beside you and putting his arm around you and saying, let us correct some things about your life. Let's get some things straightened out so you can be the kind of Christian that you need to be. Now, let's look at this for a few minutes. Giving up our sin is more than an exercise that helps us personally. It's far more important for us to rid ourselves of sin because of one important factor, and that is the glory of God. For the holiness, because of the holiness of God. It's because of what God has done for us for Christ's sake. What we do for Christ's sake is our thankfulness to him. So what do we do for Christ's sake? Well, I'm going to give you three avenues of outlook today that help us consider doing things for Christ's sake. Number one in your outline today is that we ought to dismiss our old attitudes. 
dismiss our old attitudes. I think all of us can say that we have character flaws. We come from different backgrounds. We've grown up in different environments. We've run with certain crowds, and that influences the fellowship, the interaction that we have with other people. But I notice as Paul talks about sin in this particular passage that he never mentions the diversities of people. He's not talking about how that we are so unequal in many different ways. And I think that he doesn't talk this way because when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit actually becomes the great equalizer. It doesn't really matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what your background is. The person that is being controlled by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit fills his life, that person will have the mind of Christ and then he'll begin to develop godly characteristics. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And if those characteristics do not become a part of your life, if they're not evident in your life, then you don't have uh, anything to show people that you truly are a Christian, not even to show yourself that you're a Christian. Now, there are all kinds of excuses that people will make for their bad behavior. Psychologists can come up with a thousand reasons of why people act so badly, but God is not interested in excuses. And this is because when God saves a person, he renews the mind. In verse number 23, it talks about that. The power of the Holy Spirit is able to change the behavior of any person. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. So God's not interested in your excuses and you saying, well, this happened in my life or that happened. You just don't understand what a hard time that, I, that I've had. God doesn't care about that because through the power of the Holy Spirit, a person that believes in Jesus Christ has now been given the ability to live after the commandments of God. So we don't have excuse. We correct these things because God says it can be done. I've given you the power to do them. Now let's talk about a few things that he says here, some problems that we have that we need to get rid of. And by no means is this extensive to what we could find in this passage. There are many things that we could talk about, but I've just chosen two verses here just to give you an idea of what Paul means. First of all, here's something that, a bad attitude that you need to get rid of. You need to get rid of your sourness. He says, let all bitterness be put away from you. Now the scriptures talk many times about bitterness, and it's always associated with a sour attitude. It's an attitude that never sees anything but a bleak outlook. There are a lot of sour Christians. They come into church, and as you know, I've said before, they come in looking like they drank a jar of pickle juice for breakfast, and they're just as sour as they can possibly be. When I think of bitterness, I think of pessimism. Have you ever met people that are so pessimistic that no matter what you suggest, no matter what you say, they're always negative about it? They never see a positive in anything that you want to do. I remember many years ago when I was younger and uh, my experience in our church in Kentucky, we had the largest bus ministry in the city. And we brought in hundreds and hundreds of children. And most of them were inner city kids. These were kids that had a lot of problems. And so when we discussed doing that ministry, there were people that could see nothing positive at all in that. What would those kids do to our building? That's one question that was asked. How much is it going to cost to do this? How much trouble do we have to go through? How much work will it be to deal with all these kids that come to church? 
Well, in one sense, those are good considerations. Uh, You have to think about them. But you have to weigh the positive side of that as well. And the positive side of all of that is that God changes lives, that he takes people like little children or even adults that, that have, have had so many, so many hardships in their lives, so many things gone wrong, so many terrible experiences. God can change all of that. God changes the heart in salvation. So we look at this from a positive side, that there are lives changed. And so after all these years, I can still go back to visit family in Kentucky, and every now and then, someone will walk up to me, and I might not even recognize them, and they'll say to me, I used to ride your bus. You used to bring me to church, and I want to thank you for doing that. You know, there's a positive side in that, a positive side of seeing lives change. Now, I like the way that one author put it. He said, bitterness then describes the kind of life which has become sour. It's not ready to believe good of anybody or anything, but always ready to believe evil. It is always somewhat cynical, takes the glory out of everything, tries to spoil everything. When it's shown something beautiful, it does not praise the 99% that is beautiful, but always points to the 1% of defect. And there are plenty of Christian people that have that characteristic, and that's one that ought to be dismissed in your life. You might have had some hard knocks. Things might not have gone the way that you want them to go, but there is no excuse for any person who knows Jesus Christ to become a sour, thumb-sucking cynic. You have no excuse for that. If you don't have hope in this new life that you have in Christ, then you simply cannot have hope. Secondly, another attitude that we need to get rid of, and you might find this one a little bit interesting, a little bit odd that I even bring this one out, but get rid of your shouting. He uses the word clamor here. A person that is bitter expresses himself in anger. Now, Paul's already spoken about anger in verse number 26, and anger often produces clamor. It means shouting. So people that are bitter and angry... Uh, that usually results in clamor. And here, the word actually means to become very, very noisy, to be shouting out in public. I remember when my wife and I were first married that we lived in an apartment, and there were people that lived below us, and I don't know what these people did. They must have been WWF wrestlers or something because they were always calling each other out. That was the noisiest bunch of people. The, they, uh, they must have been hitting people, each other over the head with chairs and everything else. I mean, the, the, the whole place, you could hear the, the beating and the pounding and all the arguing and the yelling, the brawling and the fighting that was going on. And we were just blessed enough to be able to leave that place and move into a duplex a little bit later and we've been married for two or three years and if we didn't move into somebody a place exactly like that I mean the people on the other side were exactly like that always fighting and always shouting but I thought about that and then I discovered that we did a little bit of that too that first five years of marriage was kind of tough and if we weren't violent people or if we were violent people, rather, one of us would be dead. We wouldn't have lived this long. Now it's different. We're too old. We're too tired to fight, so we just, we just act like we don't hear each other anymore. But I'm still careful about this, that if I'm going to get an argument with my wife, I make sure we close the windows so that the neighbors don't hear. I don't think it's a good Christian attitude. I don't think it's something that we ought to have. Shouting and expressions of anger 
uh, logically come from people that have this uncontrollable thing going on in them and, and they're not yielding themselves or Christians aren't yielding themselves to the Spirit of God when they do that. That's a bad attitude. If you're angry all the time, the shouting's going to go with it. So you get rid of the anger, you get rid of the shouting. Now I want you to be aware of something though. When I'm preaching and I'm shouting at you, I'm not angry. That, that doesn't mean that I'm angry when I'm shouting at you. It just means that probably I didn't have something too important to say. And so like most preachers, if you shout it, it sounds much more profound. And that's the reason I do it. Now next, there's another attitude that needs to be dismissed that Paul mentions here. He says, get rid of your slander. And this is something that, wow, Christians really need to pay attention to. He says, let evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, evil speaking, actually, that, that phrase there, evil speaking, comes from the same word as which we get blaspheme. And it carries with it the idea of a sense of pleasure that comes from knowing the dirt on people. And actually, just loving to dig up all those things on people. You know what I mean by that? It, it's the delight of some people to tell something. I, I need to tell something. And, and this is really going on beyond, beyond just normal gossip because you notice here that he adds the word malice to this. And so this is a, the kind of speaking where you hope by spreading the news that you can actually inflict damage on people. Now, a normal gossip, that's bad enough. Uh, a gossip just likes to have something to say because they think, that, they think that makes them more important if they've got news to tell about something. But this is more than that. This is a little different because this is getting, getting to the place that you have the full intent of damaging someone's reputation. And here, Paul calls that, it comes from the word that means blasphemy. Now, we usually think of blasphemy only in connection with God, that we only could only blaspheme God. But Paul is saying here, it's actually possible for you to blaspheme other people. And you may wonder, well, how is that possible? How, how could you blaspheme if that's a word that we reserve for God? Well, you have to think of it like this, that when you speak evil of another Christian, you are blaspheming someone who has been recreated in God's image. And the effect of that is to blaspheme God. And so if you speak evil of someone that has been created in God's image, you are also speaking evil of God. And what person is there that knows Christ as his Savior who wants to harm others with speech? If you like to do that, if that's where you get your kicks and your thrills, then you need to give that up. Check up on your salvation if that's the way that you really feel. So those are some of the old attitudes that need to go. And Paul gives us the negative side of this. But if you follow the Apostle Paul very much and you look at the way that he produces arguments in Scripture, he'll always follow up the negative with a positive. So we move on now to positive activity. We dismiss the old attitudes and next we develop new affections. Now it's impossible to start positive action until you've dealt with all of those negatives. Now, if you get rid of all those previous attitudes, now you're ready to set your affections on something else. And this is what the apostle says in the book of Colossians. Set your affections on things above. So when you have new affections, then you have no room for the sourness and the shouting and the slander. Those can't exist with heavenly affections. So what kind of person should you be? 
Well, it seems that in our old way of life, we always have this too much, too much sourness and too much shouting and too much slander. So you change from those bad attitudes and you replace those with new ones. And he gives us the kind of attitudes that need to replace those old, those old things in our lives. Now, one of these, he says, is that we are to add consideration to our lives. Add consideration. The apostle says, be ye kind one to another. One thing that I always think is beneficial for your sanity and your well-being is to be considerate. Now, much of the time when people say the wrong thing or we hear something bad about someone else, what do we do? It seems like we believe it almost immediately. We assume the worst about that person. If you hear something that's said about you, and it might just be floating out there somewhere that you, you haven't heard you know, directly from the person yourself, you assume the very worst, and you get offended very easily. Now, lots of Christians, we carry around chips on our shoulder, and we're determined that nobody's going to get one up on us. So we're offended too easily. The opposite of that is what Paul speaks here. In another place, he says this in Philippians 2 verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Our text here is speaking about positive kindness. In other words, this is a cultivated kindness. It's the active pursuit so that the meaning of the scripture really becomes become useful to others. And you can't be useful to others unless you're looking for acts of kindness. One of the bumper stickers that you'll see on cars around here, I see it often, that says, practice random acts of kindness. And uh, that's not too bad, but I think I'd rather say it in a different way. Practice deliberate acts of kindness. Go out of your way to be kind to people. Now, do you see that's different how he than what he says about bitterness. A bitter, sad person looks for only the faults, but a person that's developed the affection of kindness is very considerate, and he deliberately looks for good in every situation. So he's always looking for something to praise rather than to criticize. A critical spirit is born out of bitterness, and a complimentary spirit comes out of a kind heart. And I suppose that you could evaluate your own life and you could determine this. Which kind of heart do you have? If it always lends, lends itself towards critique, then you know that you have that old root of bitterness that's still in you. But if you're a person that, that likes to praise people and likes to do things for people, that's kindness. And I know one of the hardest things that we, we have to do is to take people that most need kindness and give it to them. And who, who are those people? Well, they're the bitter people. The bitter people are the ones that need kindness the most. So I don't want to heap more bitterness on a person that's already bitter. So what I do is that when I know that people are talking behind my back, and uh, don't think that I don't know these things, you know, I, I hear these things. When you're talking behind my back, you're not going to know it from me. You won't know it from me because what I've decided to do is that I would just smile at the people that are bitter towards me, and I'll give them kindness back, and by doing that, I prove to them, I am not going to get down on your level. There's a song that we sing that says, A higher plane that I have found, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. That's the kind of person I want to be.
Another thing Paul shows us here, and that is to add compassion to your life. This is what the word tender-hearted means: is to be kind and be tender-hearted. Now, if you look in verse number nineteen, there's the opposite of this. Paul said that the Gentiles were past feeling. Now, there he's talking about unsaved people; they're past feeling, and that's a very useful verse because that explains a lot about what follows, why he says this. But being past feeling is like having a nerve cauterized. In First Timothy. Paul spoke of those who have a conscience that's been seared with a hot iron. And he meant that people without Christ lose their sensitivity. In verse number 18, he uses the word blindness. And that word actually is not talking about your eyes, but it's really speaking about being hard, a hard person. The Boy Scouts have a term for the lowest-ranking scout. He's called a tenderfoot. And that word actually comes from the Old West mining camps, and it meant a person who was inexperienced with outdoor life. It means he hasn't yet become hardened to, all, to, the, to the outdoors. And that's really the idea that's behind tender-hearted. You're not to become hardened and insensitive to people. And what Paul is really trying to tell us here is that we're not to look at people that have problems and have no feeling toward them. Because it's not your problem, then you don't worry about it or, or you, don't, you don't come to tears over it. Other people's problems don't really bother you. Is that like Christ? Well, no. His character is one of compassion. Back 700 years before Christ came, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be a compassionate person. And you'll be familiar with this verse from our Matthew study. We used it a few weeks ago. But Matthew tries to prove the character of Jesus to show that he is the Messiah. And he quotes, or we, where we have this quotation rather from Isaiah, Isaiah 61 verse 1, which says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to them that that are bound. Bind up the brokenhearted. And that means that Christ would have compassion. Compassion over those that are broken in their sin, those that are helpless in their condition. And God wants that same kind of activity from us. I think a wonderful example of caring Christians is Paul's commendation for the churches in Macedonia. I'd like you to turn, if you would, just a moment here to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And here we find these Macedonian Christians, people that were poor, people that had their own problems, they were suffering, they needed help themselves, but they were not so self-consumed that they saw other Christians that needed help and they wouldn't go the extra mile to help them. So Paul commends them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And he says there in verse number 1, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God. In other words, we want you to know about the grace of God that was bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. Now he's talking there about people that had nothing, people that had come down to the last resources that they had, but they dug as deep as they could go to help somebody else. 
Verse number four, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift. In other words, insisting that the apostle Paul take what they had and give it to these people. And here he's talking about people down in Jerusalem that were having problems. So he says, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. And there the apostle Paul is saying, they went beyond what we expected. These were such giving and caring people, they went beyond what we could even expect of them. Sometimes our problems are all that we ever think about. We see other people and we don't really care about them. They have a need and we've hardened ourselves to them because we have our own problems to worry about. Well, if anything, the Bible is teaching us this, that our trouble ought to make us compassionate for people that are also in trouble. You know how bad it feels for you? Then you ought to have compassion for people that are experiencing problems as well. This was the way that Christ acted. When he was beaten unmercifully and nailed to the cross, he had trouble, but that didn't stop him from being compassionate, even on the very ones that were trying to take his life from him. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now that leads me then to the third thought for today. Dismiss old attitudes, develop new affections, and now thirdly, display godly attributes. He says, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And then he follows that up. I mean, these statements are are there with forgiving one another. The pursuit of kindness, having an active and tender heart, and being compassionate leads you into that higher plane of living in which you can display godly attributes. And you may think, well, that's awful presumptuous to say that people like us, that we could possibly have godly attitudes. But the apostle Peter said that we have become partakers of the divine nature. When you become a Christian, you're placed into and given access to the divine nature. And what is the attribute of God that hits closest to home for his people? Well, I would have to say it's forgiveness. Forgiveness. I mean, forgiveness is the only reason that we can even be here today and talk about these things. If we've not been forgiven of our sins and been made righteous in Christ, then we never would have a sense of what these verses mean. So Paul comes down to the end of this chapter and he sums up the reason why all of these changes have been made and his reasoning is it is because you have been forgiven and you've been forgiven when you didn't deserve it. And now that you've been forgiven, you ought also to forgive. Now let me talk about two things and we'll be through with the message. First of all is the why of forgiveness. Why do you forgive? And the answer is in verse number 32, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So it's as simple as this, that you do for others what has already been done for you. Paul does not say, forgive others and then God will forgive you. That's not the way he puts this. He says, you have already been forgiven and so now you forgive others. There was a parable that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 18 And he talked about a man who had been forgiven of an impossible debt to pay. Absolutely impossible for him to pay. But he was forgiven of that debt. And then when he was given the opportunity to forgive someone who owed him a lesser debt, he refused to do so. 
And that parable was an object lesson that a person that had such a hard heart as that, a person that has an unforgiving heart, that he would not forgive others when he has been forgiven so much, that's a person who is not an example of being Christ-like. In fact, I think the parable is set up there to show us that it is almost impossible to conceive that a person who would not forgive others could consider himself to be a Christian. We have been forgiven so much. In fact, our sins were so great that the only thing that could take care of them was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the only thing that could take care of our sins. And nothing compares to that. Nothing compares to what we've done to God. And yet it was God who took the initiative to give us Jesus Christ in order that we could have forgiveness of sins. And now, God doesn't ask us to forgive people. He demands that we forgive. We've been forgiven great transgressions. The holiness and righteousness of God has been instilled to us, and if it has instilled in us, then we ought to have forgiveness for those who have committed lesser transgressions against us. And yet this is a problem that has happened in this church before, that there are people that would stop coming to church because they couldn't stand to be in the same room with a person that they thought had wronged them. Is that person a Christian? Is that really what acting like a Christian is, that you wouldn't forgive somebody that has wronged you? Can you say that a person would do such a thing as really demonstrating the life of God in him? So it's a good question. Is that person a Christian? And if you're looking for evidence of Christianity, an unforgiving person has none. Now, despite all that a person might do then, all the good things that he thinks he does, that if he doesn't forgive, then he's missed one of the cardinal foundations of our faith. Why do we forgive? Because God has forgiven us. Now, lastly, and I think this is so important, and we really need to get this, and that is the way of forgiveness. This is absolutely vital so that it can't be missed. The way of forgiveness is Jesus Christ. How does God forgive? Well, he did it for Christ's sake. Did you know that there is a great error in generic Christianity? There's a great error in the people, the thinking of people in the world. People think, you know something? God would never send me to hell because God is a God of love. I know that God loves me. Don't count on that for a second because the Bible never says in any place that God forgives people on the basis of love. God forgives people because of Christ. And so how do you make all that match up? That doesn't make sense to me. Well, this way. The love of God is in Christ and it does not exist apart from him. So if God were to forgive people on the basis of love only as an external entity and never thought about Christ, then the sacrifice of Christ would never have been needed. God is a God of mercy and love and compassion and grace, but we find it only in Jesus Christ. And so if you want to know, why is it that a Muslim who doesn't believe in Christ, he's very sincere, he might even do some good things. Why doesn't he go to heaven? Why doesn't a Buddhist who sits around humming all day long, whatever they do, and, and uh, their, their meditations and all of that, and the Hindus and all of that, they're, they're so sincere about what they do. Why don't they go to heaven? It's because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. 
The love of God is found only in Jesus Christ, and you have to believe the truth about Jesus Christ. You can't mistake this. That's where salvation is found, and that's where God gives his greatest love, displays his love to us. It's in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, to know that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation." Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And there Paul is very simply telling us is that there's only one way that you can be reconciled to God. There's only one way that you can come into fellowship with God. Only one way that you can have peace with God. And that's through Jesus Christ. To provide any other means by which people could come to God would mean that God is cruel because he crucified his own son for no reason. If you can be forgiven without Christ, then Christ never needed to come into this world. So there we have the basic premise for all that we should be thankful for. If you want a list, if that's your thing, if you like lists, then this is the only thing that you need on your list, Jesus Christ. In him are all the blessings that we are to be thankful for. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And so you show your thankfulness to Jesus Christ by dismissing your old attitudes, by developing new affections, and displaying godly attributes. And those things done in your life will make our fellowship with one another as sweet as it can possibly be. He says, and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So I would expect, after a message like this today, who's going to be first in the line when we get ready to eat? I don't want to be that person. I don't know what you're going to do about that one there. Consider others above yourself. Be kind-hearted, tender-hearted, considerate of other people. Show Christ-likeness in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you. We are so thankful for your word. And I do pray, Lord, that every person here would consider what's been said that there is a way that we show true thankfulness it's not just what we say not just what we sing but it's how we act every single day of our lives we are thankful through obedience lord i pray that you'd help us to be christians that are obedient in everything that you'd have us to do bless our fellowship today i do pray for anyone here who may be lost and Uh, needs to know the gospel of Christ. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open up that gospel to their hearts, that they would hear and believe and then be saved, forgiven of their sins, and go away from here today happy, rejoicing in their redemption in Jesus Christ. Bless us, Lord, in our fellowship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please